welcome to Music for Life, where we educate you to purposefully self-medicate with music to build mental fitness that powers your potential. I am Judith Pinkerton, a licensed music therapist and founder of Music for Life. I am so glad you decided to join us as we explore together this month's national theme of mental health awareness. In fact, this is our last show for this month of May. We'll find music's capability of reducing grief and sadness tonight, interviewing a board-certified music therapist from the central region of the United States of America. As we tackle grief that can debilitate mental fitness, I've invited an expert on our show today who deals with grief and sadness with clients. Our special guest today is Dr. Kathleen Murphy, a board-certified music therapist and assistant professor of music therapy at University of Evansville in Indiana. She is an active clinician, supervisor, and researcher with over 30 years of clinical experience. She's authored book chapters and journal articles and additionally has presented nationally and internationally on a variety of topics related to the music therapy clinical practice and issues related to education and professional well-being. Her research interests are focused on music therapy and substance dependence across the lifespan and in short-term mental health treatment. Welcome to the Music for Life radio show, Kathy. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah. As we kind of explore together, you know, how music therapy works in situations fraught with grief and sadness, I'm just thinking about, you know, your work every day with music therapy students and how there can be maybe some grief and sadness in working with them. Yeah, well, when they see their grades sometimes, I suppose there's a little bit of grief. But it's interesting, um, <laughs> and sadness, um, not not really. I have really good students. Uh, but I will say that, you know, um, life happens, whether you're 18 or 88. And so um, students experience loss. They experience loss. Grandparents is a big a big one this year. I think we had three or four students um, actually experience the death of a grandparent that they were very, very close to. And as, you know, as it goes, every student deals with grief differently. Now, in my role at the university, I am an educator. And while I am a music therapist by profession, I am not the therapist for my students. But we do talk a lot about self-care and so I do encourage students to engage in their self-care practices, you know, as they're going through their grieving process. Um, it's interesting, too, when we talk about hospice, when we talk about bereavement, um, a lot of students will share stories of loss and um, will talk about, you know, how they have dealt with loss, um, a few of them actually do use music. Um, some of them, the use of music hasn't crossed their mind yet. Um, but it, it, is a, it, it is a common issue. I think grief is something that affects all of us. Um, and the other part of grief is um, walking away from a familiar life, leaving, you know, for, for college students anyways, you know, leaving their high school buddies, leaving that life and 
letting go of that life and then moving into the like the next chapter of their life. So there's some there's some grief and loss there um, as well. Yeah, and as we look at the of course the different stages of grief, it's not just about being sad because there are other moods that can move into that as well. Um, mm-hmm. So it's you know recognizing that it's not just about being sad that can come from loss that um, the other emotions get involved as well. Well, that's true. And so I think about the work I've done in um, with folks who have substance dependence, especially the women. So for them, grief looks a little bit different um, because it's not so much sadness as it is regret or guilt or shame. Um, and so the grief is over the lost opportunities because uh, somebody was getting high or they were out getting drunk or they were out scoring a drug, and so they missed so much. And so um, a lot of times we associate grief with death, but grief and sadness and loss can happen in a variety of situations. So it complicates then you know, it's a delivery of music therapy services and music to recommend because everybody is so different and not only the way that they experience it, but also what it's about. Correct. And I think, um, again, when we talk about music, this is another, I can have another anecdote I can share. Um, I teach a class called Receptive and Compositional Methods in Music Therapy, and in that class, students learn how to do song discussions and how to use imagery and how to do songwriting. Well, one of the uh, demonstrations, one of the classes, um, a student brought in a song by Paramore, but I have no idea what the name of it is. Um, oh. Anyways, it, it had to do with grief. At least I think it was Paramore. Um, and so the song touched everybody on such an emotional level, we actually had to stop the demonstration because the music just tapped into some unexpressed grief and sadness for several of the students. And um, so we had to, you know, kind of bring the demonstration to a close and, you know, help help the students get into a place where they were going to be okay to go on with their day. So I think that, you know, music is very powerful in eliciting feelings of sadness and grief when you least expect it. Um, Right. And so for our listeners who may get into a similar situation because you never know what music is going to create pain for somebody and stop pain for somebody else. So when you were in that situation with the students, you stopped the music, and then what did you do? Mm-hmm. Um, I asked the students what they needed from the group. Um, because, again, it was a classroom situation, so it wasn't therapy. So I had to really contain the situation. It wasn't a place to process what was going on. So I asked the students um, what they needed from the group, and um, uh, they just needed to leave. They just needed some time to go off and to sort of be by themselves. And so um, I let them leave the class, and then I checked in with them, 
you know, they came, they left for a few minutes. They got themselves together and they came back to class. But then I talked with them after the class was over to make sure they were okay, to let them know where the counseling resources were. Um, and then we also had then a discussion on the power of music and the fallacy that music is non-invasive and the fallacy that um, music is not threatening because that situation was both invasive and threatening. So I think it was a good teaching moment for the students, you know, to, to really to see the power of music and to realize that music can tap into um, deep-seated feelings that may or may not be right on the surface um, and that there's also a sense of resiliency because, again, now the students that I work with don't have any mental health issues and have this been in a mental health situation, I probably would have handled it. Well, I know I would have handled it differently. Um, but that the students were resilient, you know, and they were able to learn from that. The students who left the room left. They were able to take care of themselves. Um, they had good support networks. So, you know, everything, it turned out okay. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, what the students learned for sure was that, you know, music can be threatening, music can be invasive, music can really touch those deep emotions, and that as therapists we have to be prepared to handle that. You know, we've, we've had many situations, Kathy, across the United States where licensure has been um, at the forefront of legislators' minds, and some of the biggest questions that they ask is, well, what harm could it do? Why do we need to have a license? Why do we need to have state recognition? Why do we need to protect the public, you know, by specifying that a trained music therapist needs to be doing this? And this is a, a really good observation about what happened in this classroom experience where mm-hmm. music can provoke harm. Yes, yes. And um, honestly... You know, I, there were no video cameras running, but this is like one of those times. It's like, see, I can show you. <laughs> I can show you mm-hmm. what happens. Um, yeah, I know, really. You know, it, yeah, um, but but it is, and I think that that is something that you know we have as music therapists we have to be very careful of. You know, because we're the ones that are saying sometimes. Sometimes we're the ones saying that it's not threatening and it's not invasive. And, and uh, yeah, I agree because we're trying to say, nice. you know, it's it's a safer form of therapy as opposed to being stuck with a needle or, you know, mm-hmm. that type type of thing. And so, yeah, I I think right. that we do need to make sure that we're using the correct words because I know I've used it, but mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. It can be invasive and yep. it can be threatening. Yes, yes. So to so. kind of shift a little bit here, I know that for our own self care. Um, that uh, you actually don't push play on a particular song when you personally are dealing with any sad situation or any grief. So what do you do personally that might be of interest to our listeners to consider? Okay, well, um, sometimes I sing. Sometimes I write songs. Sometimes I improvise. Oftentimes, I'll draw a mandala. Um, Sometimes I call a friend or my sister. Um, 
you know, most recently, I think the uh, grief issue I've been dealing with most recently is the loss of my mother, um, which was something that I could share with my sister. And to just to kind of sit and listen to a piece of music, was, for me, would have kept me stuck. But if I can take those feelings and if I can use them creatively to express what I'm feeling, um, I feel much better. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I would um, sing songs that I knew my mother liked, the songs that, you know, we would sing together. Sometimes I would just sing. Um, I would just make stuff up, just do some vocal improv. Um, and, you know, I wrote a song or two, just putting my feelings down into words. Um, yeah, so those are the kinds of things that that I do. More active so when you think and more about active and working. Right, right, active rather than passive. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of the mandala, what kind of thought process would you put yourself through in creating a mandala? And if you could describe for our listeners what a mandala is. Okay, so a mandala is a circle drawing that represents a personal truth at a given moment. Um, and there is no right or wrong to it. And so basically I would sit down and um, I would have my blank sheet of paper in front of me and I would have drawn a circle on it, like a 12 or a 14-inch circle in diameter. And I would have my pastels out in front of me, which are crayons for adults or the coolest things in the world. And um, I would just sit and kind of close my eyes and kind of get in touch with what I was feeling. And when a color or a shape came to mind, I would just start putting color on the paper. And then when that was done, sometimes I close my mandala book. Sometimes I interrogate my mandala, so I ask it questions. Um, Sometimes I'll just do something as simple as give it a title. Sometimes I'll look at it and um, and journal and just kind of write about what the colors are saying to me. Um, I have been trained in mandala. I've done the MARI assessment training and all that. But I try to leave that cognitive piece out when I'm doing my own mandalas and really just kind of respond to what I'm seeing on the paper. Mm -hmm. Don't try and therapize yourself. Pardon me? You don't try to therapize yourself. No. (laughs) Why am I feeling this? You know, where you have this discussion with yourself, like, wow, what does it mean? Yeah. Just allow it to free flow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so in my in my own and I I sincere embrace and so on for the loss of your mother. I'm I still have my mother, and so I can't imagine what it feels like to be motherless. And so my mm. deep felt sorry for you. Yeah, it's a unique. Um, yeah, like you're now the matriarch. Well, yeah, and you know, of course, my dad died a long, long time ago. It's been over twenty years since I've lost, since my father died. But yeah, and it's like I don't have any aunts and uncles left. You know, like everybody, like so it's my cousins and me, and you know, like we're the we're the grown-ups now. <laughs> yeah, you know, and isn't that funny saying that because you know we're how old now? <laughs> yeah. Well, now we have to be the grown-ups. Yeah. 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 Oh man. Yeah, what a burden it can feel like. 
you know, because we're always yeah. used to relying on those uh, yeah, older than us. Yeah, it's, it's just a different feeling. I don't know that I would necessarily use the word burden. In some ways, it's I feel a little more responsible mm. um, because, you know, I I have nieces and nephews, and so now, like, you know, they're going to look to me the same way that I look to my aunts and uncles. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's and it's just different. I, I I wouldn't call it a burden. It's just it's just different. It's it's yeah. yeah. Yeah, but see, that's that's the healthier aspect of it. You're not thinking of it mm-hmm. as a burden, whereas somebody else might go, right. "Oh my God, now I'm responsible for right." <laughs> And I so think that's a healthy that's thing, Kathy. Really, yeah, I think what's really important, though, is that everybody's grief journey is different. Um, and everyone's going to have a different reaction. And everyone's going to have a different feeling. And everyone's going to have a different process. And, you know, Kubler-Ross laid out her stages of grief. And they're wonderful, but they don't always happen in that same order. Um, and they're not a nice neat little package. Like when you read the book, it's like, oh, okay. It's like this nice neat little package of stages that people go through, but it's different for everybody. And, um, everybody's going to deal with it differently, which is why I, I don't believe there's a one size fits all approach to dealing with grief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some people, it's going to be they're going to just go out and exercise. For other people, you know, they're going to have to light candles and, you know, have vigils all the time. And, you know, other people are just going to get really, really caught up in, in their sadness. Um, so, you know, I think being a, as a therapist, being able to respect somebody's process. And the tricky part is, to help people move through it at their own pace and not trying to rush it. Because as as a Mm -hmm. therapist, sometimes, you know, we can get impatient. It's like, oh, my God, you know, you're coming in and you're still sad. You're still sad. You're still sad. You're still sad. Why are you sad? You know, and Mm -hmm. but for some people, it might take them longer to work through the sadness, you know. And sometimes people need a little push, you know, they need a little encouragement. And that, I think, just, you know, kind of knowing the hows and whys and when to do that, that really sort of comes with with experience and, you know, with practice and, you know, learning how to listen to yourself and, and to your intuition, which, again, gets back to that whole self-care thing. Because, you know, as a therapist, if we're not taking care of ourselves, if we're not feeling our well, then we have nothing love to give the people that we're working with. Yeah. You know, I re- I'm remembering a comment that you made about um, that if you pushed play on a piece of music that you would find that you could maybe get stuck there, you know, with playing mm-hmm. it over and over rather than doing the um, processes that you described. And I had a, an experience myself a couple decades ago where I was pregnant with twins and um, after the first trimester, I was like, good to go. Everything's good. Everything looks wonderful. They're healthy. 
And then a month later, I had two dead babies. And the overwhelming grief of of that um, drove me to listen to The Rose by Bette Midler. And mm. I find that to be a real interesting swivel piece and in that, you know, if, if you have love in your life, it could be a soothing piece for you. If you have loss of love in your life, it could be a sad, grieving piece for you. So for me, mm-hmm. it ended up being a very sad, sad piece. And I pushed replay, replay, replay on that. I don't know how many times to help expedite the process and I think that Mm -hmm. in doing that it also kept me stuck there because I kept going over Mm -hmm. and over and over it you know and what what is this and oh I can't believe this and you know I still had the physical symptoms of being pregnant you're are you sure that I don't have them you know all of this was raging through my mind for a while and for me a while is uh, a couple months I know that some people take years to process grief um, and then right. you may think it's all over, and then I found myself sitting um, in church in the first row. Fortunately, I had two really close friends on either side of me, and the singer got up and started singing the rose. And I went oh my hysterical. Goodness. I went hysterical. I thought I had processed it all. <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> so no, you never know. <laughs> yeah, and, like, again, that's sort of what happened in the classroom when that song played. You know, I mean, with any of our emotions, we, we never know. But I think grief is the real the real kicker because you really just never know when something is going to tap into that memory. And music is so powerful in that way. Music attaches to memories. You know, it's processed in the emotional centers of our brain. So it attaches to memory. It attaches to emotion. And so, you know, you can be at a family gathering having a great old time and a song will come on and you know you're transported back or some other memory um you know comes in comes into play and then you know depending on the um the magnitude of the memory you know it can affect how you're feeling in that moment yes yeah and so for our listeners you know, if you find that you try any of these things that we have talked about and you're still at like a loss of really finding something that's effective for you, I suggest um, that you try going to my TEDx talk called Music Powers Potential Building Mental Fitness and seeing if uh, any of the music listening habits that are talked about resonate with you so that you can discover what music says about your health and how you can truly build your own mental fitness, applying music as medicine to manage more easily life's ups and downs and the downloadable two-hour accredited course called the Music Medicine Boot Camp. So you can go on to the link on this blog talk radio show to our Music for Life blog and find out the link to the rose if you haven't heard it. Um, as well as to the Music Medicine Boot Camp and other things that we recommend that you can do as you start exploring for yourself how does music work for you or against you? How does it support you or not? And Kathy, as we look at, you know, with addiction, um, substance dependence, uh, it's it's being able to utilize music in a different way. You know, what what could that music actually be saying about your health story? Because it attaches to us in such a deep, meaningful way that when you can go to it and 
analyze it from a different perspective, it might aid in that recovery. Yes, it might. And, you know, as I would tell the people, the patients that I work with, is that, you know, in in recovery, music is your best friend. It's also your biggest enemy. Because music does attach to memories. And so you might have a memory of when you were using and you were partying in the beginning and life was really good. Or you might hear the song that you would listen to when you were going to get to score your drugs from your dealer. Or you might you know, hear the song that you listened to when you were cutting your cocaine or, you know, getting your um, heroin ready or, you know, whatever. So music can attach to those memories and give you cravings. On the other hand, you can find music that can help to get the committee in your head to be quiet, that can, you know, refocus what you're thinking can change your mood, can change how you're feeling. And I would often tell the folks that I worked with in early recovery, you put away your playlist for a year at least. And they'd look at me like I was crazy. And I'd say, find some new music to listen to. Find some music that you feel that's soothing, that motivates you. Put together a positive, you know, playlist. Put together songs that have positive messages, um, songs that are going to, fill you with hope or motivation or, you know, distract you um, from from what's going on. You know, I've also talked with um, uh, people with substance challenges where the, we discussed their theme song. You know, what is that music that's stuck in your head? And what is mm-hmm. it telling? What is the health story that it's telling about you so that you now become empowered to look at it differently so that you can release it and start looking for that new music and developing new playlists. Um, so it's it's interesting for them to start paying attention to the lyrics and what the actual music itself might be saying about different parts of them because as you and I know, music operates from our central nervous system and so what is what is it doing to you <laughs> as opposed to how could it possibly be supportive for you? I know that in our last few minutes together here, Kathy, I would love to, I have a burning question for you. I would love okay. to know what you would like to impress on our world before you leave it. Oh, that music um, is essential for living. That Music can help people to learn more about themselves. It can provide opportunities for people to do things that they never thought possible, whether it's the little baby in the NICU who's trying to learn how to, you know, suck off a bottle or um, somebody in recovery who's, you know, trying to, maintain a sober life or, you know, if it's somebody who's in their last moments on earth making a transition, that there's things that music can do. Um, and I know my colleagues in the other arts aren't going, to be, aren't going to be happy with this part, but I think there are things that music can do that the other, even the other arts can't do. That music is really essential for living and essential for health and essential for healing. And I say a big amen to that. It's it's our life. 
<laughs> yeah. It's what we do, and it's what keeps us passionate about what we do because we know how how well it works. Thank you so much for being on the show with me, Kathy. You have been listening to Music for Life with Judith Pinkerton, where we support you building mental fitness to power your potential. To connect with us before the next show, please go to musicforlife.us for more information. It is my sincere mission to have inspired you with life skills featuring music medicine for health and today's special guest, music therapist, Dr. Kathleen Murphy. Till we meet again, notice how you purposefully self-medicate with music to build mental fitness that can power your potential. Thank you, Kathy. You're welcome. Thank you, Judith. Have a good night. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.